Test, three, four, test, one, two. All right, welcome. I'm Dawn Panconian. This is Myth, Ritual, and Symbolism. Welcome to the most organic podcast I have given yet. Today is Tuesday, September 27th, and I keep rearranging your questions, trying to get them to flow into one another so that I can deliver this linear talk and it's just not happening. So I've got a more or less good uh, arrangement going on here um, and I'm just gonna roll through it and see what happens. Things that I think we're gonna talk about here. Language and myth, obviously, in general. That's the course we're in. Ritual. I'm gonna put ritual up front because I keep saving it for the end and barely getting to it. Written versus oral language. Language loss, quote-unquote. Language and thought. Again, that was Lara Boroditsky, and that's part of our point of departure for last week's readings on language and power. Language and understandings of time, which is related to language and thought and how language shapes thought. The problem or not of freedom of speech. Eric, you left us this one, and I'm really thrilled about it. I'm going to add to your thinking about freedom of speech as a myth, whether or not we can also think of freedom of speech as a metaphor. Um, what is free speech? Is speech ever free, etc.? What does that do? And then myth and metaphor, that's my transition into thinking about myth and metaphor, which is where we ended with the final text for last week. The dangers of metaphors, of course, language and power in general. And then Yo-Yo and Joseph, you both asked questions about accents, which I didn't expect. And obviously you're thinking with Gloria Ansaldúa and your questions are interesting. So we're gonna try to get there and end there. I thought I would start. I'm sorry, I'm talking fast. This is my trying to make my podcasts shorter. And also, I'm just really excited about the content. Again, um, I'll try to take breaths. I'll try to make this enjoyable and not rushed. Uh, talking you through the readings that I fit into that last week, week four, on language and power so that you can understand. We're trying to do in a week what people do for decades with entire careers that thinking about language in relationship to power. I mean, there are linguists, there are linguistic anthropologists, for example, who commit their lives to thinking about these things. And we're just flying past. And so what I did was I gave you a video and three texts and they all do separate, though in ways overlapping, things for us. First, you had that TED Talk by Lara Boroditsky. If you really liked that TED Talk and you want more, know that you can type Lara Boroditsky into YouTube and there's an hour-long talk by her. There's at least one and I think a couple of hour-and-a-half-long talks by her. There, there's more by her if you want it. And she gives more examples and she fleshes them out more thoroughly in those longer talks. And all right, so that we started there because I want you thinking about the relationship between language and thought there. This has been a debate in linguistics for more than a hundred years now. This is originally called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Um, Benjamin Whorf, student of Edward Sapir. You don't need to know all this, but this is a cool story. So I'm going to tell it to you anyways. I like putting stories into my podcasts. Um, Benjamin Worf, student of Edward Sapir, had been a firefighter and then, I'm telling you this the way I learned it in lecture in grad school, so I didn't do any follow-up, I'm just, this could be like sacred narrative by now, but this is how it, it was delivered in lecture format when I heard it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, oh my god. Um, so Benjamin Worf had been a firefighter and 
he goes back to school and he's studying linguistics under Edward Sapir and he has this epiphany. There had been an explosion at a like in a warehouse where they were storing empty gasoline drums and what he realized was people weren't being careful around these empty, quote-unquote, empty gasoline drums because they were considered to be empty, which meant they were considered to be harmless, right? What's the threat of a warehouse full of empty barrels? There is no threat. But these were empty gasoline drums, which meant there wasn't any liquid form petroleum gas in them, but what there was was the fumes. And so... What Worf, in, in thinking through this accident as a firefighter, arrived at was what was shaping people's practices and what ultimately caused the explosion in this warehouse was the word empty. And so there, alongside of Edward Sapir, they developed this hypothesis that language shapes thought. And that was really a hundred years ago. Let me do it really fast. Edward um, Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. Again, it's really just called the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. And do, 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 give me a date. Somebody give me a date. It's considered, it's called linguistic relativity. I should have told you that. And for some reason, nobody cares about when this happened. Date. 1929, so almost 100 years ago. And in the present, almost 100 years later, it's generally accepted as truth in the sciences that language now does shape thought. And this understanding that this is truth is based on research that looks a lot like the kinds of research that Lara Boroditsky does in her lab. And I think she does a really good job of telling a lot of that research relatively quickly so you get a sense of how people study the relationship between language and thought and then arrive at confirmation that language does in fact shape thought. So we started there. I want us to think in this class in particular about if language shapes thought, do narratives also shape thought? And in that I'm asking, do narratives, because of their grammar structures, because of their, their word order, right, or syntax, because of their plot lines. I mean, think for example about plot lines. And there are kinds of plot lines that we take for granted. And, and that's cultural and I think that's um, social. And I, any of you who spend a lot of time studying narrative construction by artists and designers in, and writers in other countries, for example, I think usually what you're trying to do is get past the quote-unquote Hollywood storyline. And so I started with this video because I was thinking, okay, we're overwhelmingly convinced right now that language shapes thought, but what about narrative? Does narrative structure also shape thought? And that is part of my, if I want to get to how can we reclaim narratives or use narratives or, or reassemble narratives, what can we do with narratives to maybe somehow improve the future? If I'm trying to get there, I need to think about how, what is the relationship between narratives and our thinking? Can, can we select certain kinds of narratives or an array of narratives and, and use those to sort of in effect reprogram our brains? And so that's why I wanted to start with already. 
Um, by learning new languages, in effect, we can reprogram our brains. Can we do that by learning new narratives that, that assume new structures to us, new to us, not new to the world? And so that was part of my motive for putting that talk up front. The other motive I had was I was thinking about... Do I want to say this right here? Oh my god, you guys, I always have this problem. I'm just not a linear thinker. Let me stop there. That's enough. That was my primary motive. We'll come back to other thoughts that I had with, in, with relation to, to this talk. Um, but let me do say here that I've used other talks by Lara Boroditsky in other courses, never in this particular course, um, because she gets you a lot of information fast. Know that if you go back and you listen, and Ryan, you heard this right off the bat, if you listen with an eye towards kind of the ethics of the science, you'll start to hear the language Boroditsky uses isn't, isn't perfect, that's a euphemism, is problematic. Boroditsky is a really good scientist who does good lab-based science, on human beings, but the problem with that is precisely the on human beings. This isn't, anthropologists tend to talk about doing research with people and you say, I work with. I work with the Acoma peoples, for example. I work with members of the Acoma community and I do this and we do this together. And it's so maybe it's just discursive, but it feels cleaner. And also anthropologists do long-term qualitative research instead of lab-based research. And so, and this isn't, it kind of seems like I'm trying to say we're better. I'm gonna say we feel less problematic as scientists to me and you can decide whether you agree or not. Anthropologists go into the quote unquote field. That's also totally problematized by now, but let's say I'm interested in studying the community, uh, members of the Acoma community outside of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so, I'm, I go there and I live there and I deep hang out and I participate and I participate observe or if it's too awkward for me to participate then I just do really careful observation and try not to make an ass of myself and not try not to be too obtrusive and what I really need to do if I want to work with and, and learn from the Acoma peoples is I need to be in conversation with them and so well, I could do the kinds of research that Lara Boroditsky does in a lab with her team, but it would take me a lot longer and it would be a lot messier, right? I wouldn't have the controls and I would mostly be reliant on just observing how people behave. So for example, Lara Boroditsky gives us that example of, you know, we had people sit facing north and then we gave them pictures and they laid them out in this order and then we had people sit facing east and then we lay, we gave them pictures and they laid them out in this order and so people thought of time in relation to cardinal directions that's a really cool finding um what's uncomfortable about it is that we had people sit this way and then we learned x that starts to sound like i mean it, you see the power hierarchy there this is a team of scientists that invite people into their laboratory. I'm sure they're remunerated. They're probably paid for their time and they participate in studies and, and there's an agreement, right? That you'll pay us and we'll participate in your studies. But there's a lot of, um, th there's necessarily 
this problem of power and hierarchy in that space. That doesn't mean the science is invalid. And so I do want to say to you again, most scientists assume that language does shape how we think. A lot of that understanding does come from the kinds of lab-based research that Lara Boroditsky does with her team. Um, I do think she's a really good scientist, but I also feel uncomfortable when I hear her recount her studies. Even while I'm excited she's so excited about her research and that's almost contagious, there's also in me this kind of red flag that says, okay, 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 but, but this is a little bit gross. Um, so I wanted to say that out loud. Uh, Ryan, you picked up on that right away, and I was trying to figure out where... I'll, well, I'll come to it later. I have somewhere in my list of all of your questions. Ryan, you saying, you know, I heard this as somebody, and it was so clear to me that Laura Boroditsky is this white woman scientist who is positioned as not the same as the people she's studying, and... Um, and you're right. And that's exactly what all of us should hear when we see that. Um, I don't think that negates the science, but it does problematize the science. It does beg, I think, that we ask, <laughs> that we go directly to the community, that, that we look for these findings outside of laboratories. That's what I want to say as well, to triangulate if we can the kinds of findings that Lara Boroditsky reports. All right, now let me move forward. Gloria Ansaldua, this is chapter five from her book. If anybody wants the whole book, I have it as a PDF. Send me a message, ask me for it. Say, hey, I'd love to see the whole book. I'll send it to you. I don't know if I should say that out loud on a podcast, but I'm going to. I didn't scan the whole thing. I found it online, so um, somebody else can get in trouble for that. But the book is Borderlands slash La Frontera. Again, it was her dissertation. And it was, uh, she transformed it into a book after finishing her graduate work. And this chapter is in this week because I wanted you to have the experience of, of thinking in Spanish. This is also pro essentially a write about language and power. And um, a lot of you, it got you thinking about dialect. It could have gotten you thinking about creoles versus pigeons. Um, it got you thinking about speech versus written language. All of that is really important to thinking about language and power. Um, Gloria Ansaldua, just the fact that she took this book and wrote it out in not one, not two languages, but in essentially, I think in chapter five, she describes seven different languages and they're all variations that sit on a kind of a, a line that spans maybe perfect English is one pole and perfect, and by perfect, I mean like capital L language English, the way it exists in the dictionary is one pole and capital L language Spanish is the other pole. And then all of these varieties of, of languages or dialects, if we prefer, of ways of speaking sit somewhere on that line between the two poles. And so I think that this does a really good job of making clear how language exists as speech. And know that linguists from the very beginning, starting with um, Fernand de Saussure, who is a famous Swiss linguist and considered one of two fathers. There was a father of linguists in Switzerland and then there's another one in the US. They were thinking and, and doing language or, or linguistics specifically, semiotics. They're the fathers of semiotics. 
they were doing their thinking about language and meaning simultaneously or almost simultaneously on opposite sides of the Atlantic and Ferdinand de Saussure in particular, though both, made it really clear that language, capital L language, the sort of perfect form language, is different from speech. Um, speech, for example, evolves much more quickly. These are things I want to say to you later, so let me not say them now. But Gloria Ansaldúa gets us starting to see how quickly speech evolves and how, in how many different directions speech can evolve. I want to tell you oral societies and colonial experiences, this was essential because, again, in this course, we are spending so much time looking at myth in written form, and I wish that wasn't the way we were doing it, but I cannot find a feasible way to immerse ourselves in oral myth. Um, I wish, and I just think this doesn't exist yet, if you can find it, let me know. I wish there was an archives of recordings of sacred narratives that are oral, and so that we could go there instead of to um, sacredtexts.com. I like sacredtexts.com for other reasons. It introduces us to all of the problems with transcribing and translating mythology. But I, I do really, in a perfect world, in a lot of cases, much more than we are doing, we'd be hanging out with the speakers of myths. We'd be hearing them instead of reading translations of those. And then, so there, lastly, is a myth a metaphor? Is a metaphor a myth? This was me putting into a kind of a blog post what in the past has been an entire week's course on these questions. And so what I did was I just took two of my favorite readings that I've used, those readings always evolve. There's a ton of lit on the relationship between myth and metaphor. I just took my favorites and I pulled out sections from them and then I wrote you through my thinking. And so I'm not going to talk at length here yet. I will follow up by answering your questions, but more or less what's in my head in relationship to is a myth a metaphor and then also a separate question, is a metaphor a myth? Most of what's in my head is on that paper. I do leave you by saying, think about this, does this matter? And so I will try to arrive there. A couple of you said, well, I don't know, does it matter? I will give you my answer as best I can. Now let's go to language and myth. I thought this was a good place to start. Audrey, you asked, are language and myth fundamentally intertwined? For example, can telling a myth in a different language fundamentally change it? Here, this was the second part of my choosing to open with Lara Boroditsky on language and thought. We need to stop to think about this. It's not just does language shape thought and then does narrative shape thought and these are parallel and we can think about them simultaneously. It's also, we're in this class reading transcriptions and translations of myths into English most of the time, almost all of the time. And so we need to stop and think. Um, does changing the, the form in which a myth is delivered from oral to written change it? Probably. Does changing the language in which a myth is communicated change it? If we believe that language shapes thought, then yes, absolutely. You can't even argue with that. Um, so... So that. <laughs> so that's also, that's part of why we're starting here. We're spending a whole week on power and language because I don't think we have 
a fix. I mean, the fix would be, let's all go out and learn as many languages as we can, and then let's come back together and let's talk across languages and a multiplicity of languages about these sacred narratives and let's try to understand them both not only in their contexts but in their original languages that's perfect world it's just not mcad semester format and so the best we can do is stop and recognize our limitations and recognize that we're going to do the best we can we're going to analyze myths in this course um, we're going to borrow Freudian logic psychoanalysis, we're going to look at um, Bronslow Malinowski and borrow his functionalist thinking. Um, we're going to do analyses of myths and we're going to do them um, using theories of outsiders, but we're also all the while going to be aware of all of the potential problems. Our analyses aren't truths. Um, they might provide us, we hope they will provide us with interesting insights and again into what do we want insights. We want insights into what myths do, most simply. Also, what ritual does. Um, that's maybe a functionalist thinking. Freud would say, what do these tell us about the subconscious? What can we better understand about ourselves? What both really are asking, though Freud is maybe thinking at a more individual level and Malinowski would have been thinking at a more societal level, is they're asking, what are myths? What can rituals tell us about ourselves as human beings? And so, we're interested in trying to answer that question while we're aware that we're working in formats, written versus oral, um, or languages, English versus the original languages in which these sacred narratives were shared, communicated, that are going to limit us, okay? Um, and then Bella, you asked, I wasn't exactly sure, but you have this question, is there an effect when learning about a language of a culture different from one's own? Um, oh, this is what happened. I misunderstood your use of culture. So you were thinking, is there, does learning about a language that belongs to people to which we do not belong, belongs to a community of people for which we are not quote unquote an insider, um, it, is, is there an effect? Um, I think quite obviously there's an effect, right? It does something to us. And, and the question though that you ask, that you're trying to get to, is there a danger in doing so? Um, that's interesting to think about. It's not something I've ever considered as an accumulator of knowledge, right? I like to think that, again, the more languages you speak, the more quote unquote souls you have or, or the wider array of thoughts you're able to have or um, I mean, maybe that's a capitalist logic. It's just an accumulation of languages instead of an accumulation of capital. Um, it is interesting to stop and think, what, how does this change us? How does going from monolingual to bilingual and multilingual change us as individuals? And then also, how does it change us and mass as, as, as members of a community, right? What if everybody in the US was multilingual? How would that change the United States in general? Um, in my head, I'm kind of stuck at that would be so badass and think about how much better we would be at understanding each other. But I think you're right to stop and say, but is there a risk? What do, what do we lose? Um, my answer is, I don't know, but we can stop. We can keep thinking about that. 
And then the one other question that you asked that I wanted to put up front because I thought it fit up front is how much of our idea about myth as false and unscientific, so this is the myth equals lie, how much of this really just is a result of xenophobia? Um, and that's a good question. And I don't know, but absolutely, if we had attached the idea of myth to Christian narratives right from the start and the people doing these analyses were Christians and they were studying their colleagues and their cohort and maybe an elite white class in Western Europe, myth as a word probably would not have evolved to mean lie. So I think there's a really good point being made in your question. Now I wanna move on to ritual because I always save it for last. Ethan, you start by saying, sorry to backtrack a little bit, but I've been thinking about when we were talking about how the term ritual can often be used with negative connotations, so some people strive to not use it at all. In the context, at least, of formerly applying the word ritual to small daily practices, such as brushing teeth, drinking a warm beverage in the morning, etc., what would be a good replacement? So for not thinking about um, ritual as it's attached, again, to exotic capital O, others, but ritual as it's attached to these daily acts, practices, um, these more contemporary but repeated, repetitive, and maybe for some of us, I mean, drinking coffee in the morning can absolutely, if we want it to be, be tied to spirituality. Um, how do we think about what might we call those rituals instead? And what I want to say to you is, and here, let me let you keep speaking. You also write, I've seen so much content lately about how using the concept of ritual opposed to routine is greatly helpful for neurodivergent people. And since trying it myself, I've generally had more success getting myself taken care of just a little bit better each day. What other magic inducing and not necessarily task, not necessity task to do expected type of words could also be used to describe this concept. So here's what you're doing. You're saying, okay, Don told us ritual is a bad word now, people avoid using it, and yet there's this new discourse inside of like, thinking about an understanding of neurodivergence that says, what if we replace the word routine with ritual? And you found that this works for you, right? Like participate in rituals, make your morning coffee a ritual, and, and that this helps you to remember to do self-care. I suddenly hear, I didn't know about that, but I need to make really clear that the people that avoid using the word ritual are people in the social scientists, the people who broke the word ritual. Let's say that. So ritual inside of the sciences is problematic, and I should have been really clear about this right from the start, because it necessarily exists inside of the history of sciences. And so when scientists are doing research and studying ritual, like it's impossible not to think back through all of the ways in which scientists have studied ritual in the past, and that's the problem with ritual. Um, I think, and also Shawnee, you asked a question about ritual and routine last week that I just didn't do a good job of getting to. What's the difference between ritual and routine? And suddenly, now that I have Ethan's thinking here too, and now that I'm aware that there's this push to replace routine with ritual inside of the thinking about, um, neurodivergence, also probably inside of thinking just about accessibility in general. Uh, I get it, like I wanna nod and be like, that's exactly what ritual needs to do. Ritual needs to do something good for us for a change. Um, and it's not gonna start in the sciences. Maybe here in this particular sphere, ritual can become um, unproblematic. And, and obviously ritual does really important things for lots of people who I'm thinking of 
the indigenous peoples of the Americas, for example, people talk about their own rituals as rituals unproblematically and embrace them and love them and Shawnee you were writing about your own experiences of powwows for example last week and Ryan you this week here this is a little bit of a shift but it's also important you're talking about lacrosse by definition is a ritual in my culture um, there are contexts and I just think they are there are so many contexts but they're outside of the sciences in which ritual is still a really good word so my answer, Ethan, to you is don't look for another word. Use ritual if that's what people are using. Um, also though, I'm reading this dystopic novel by Jesse Ball right now and he said something about ceremony. Ceremony, it's really just a sequence of events is what he says offhandedly. One of the characters says it inside of his novel and it made me think, well, does that mean ceremony is really just ritual? And so that combined with your question here, Ethan, made me wonder if ceremony is a useful word for us ever. If we start to feel like we're overusing ritual, then I start to wonder if ceremony can work in some context for us. Can it be a good word? It's not a word we use very often, um, but it sounds celebratory. And could it be the kind of word we could use to celebrate ourselves? Um, this is my morning ceremony. I don't know, maybe that it has its own set of connotations and, and maybe too that feels a little bit like we're appropriating it from other spheres. But again, um, let me stop thinking there. That's what I have in my head. Now, Ryan, I wanna go to your thinking about lacrosse as a ritual in your culture. Ryan asks, taking that into account, that lacrosse is by definition ritual in my culture and Ryan is Anishinaabe and I think I, I shouldn't say this, I don't know, actually, but I think from the East Coast, right? New York State region, which made me guess Iroquois, but I don't know. So Ryan, I'll let you respond and let us know. If we were in class live, I would just turn to you and say, tell us. Um, lacrosse, by definition, is a ritual in my culture. Taking that into account, um, you say, what do you think about indigenous cultures' rituals that have been transformed into mundane stolen items slash sports slash etc., i.e. lacrosse being a ritual and now being commonly seen as a sport, especially a white sport, and smudging being seen as pagan slash Satanist or assuming how it is performed. I'm going to stick with lacrosse here in this example just to keep it singular and I think lacrosse is a really powerful example. Here's another case. Uh, where obviously the word ritual is really important. The word ritual and attaching it to lacrosse is in effect reminding people and, and mass that lacrosse is ritual. And it's not just this like super suburban elite white class sport, which we might start to think if we hear the word like lacrosse now indexes for us that subculture. Um, I did my graduate work at Northwestern University and they have been repeatedly the number one girls lacrosse team in the nation. And so for me, lacrosse is like these super, super rich white girls from private schools and they're really good athletes and they're also super academic. And they came out of boarding schools, not all of them. This is me generalizing, but when I close my eyes and picture the word lacrosse, like these are the people that populate that image. And Ryan's saying, what do you think about that? Um, I think it's colonization, right? I think it is gentrification, absolutely. And I think it is not unlike, and I can't see you in the classroom, so I hope this doesn't call anybody out, but, and 
here's what I can say. When I was 21 years old, you guys, I had dreadlocks. All right, I think it is not unlike white kids having dreadlocks. I think it is, I think it's cultural appropriation, right? Um, is it different from other forms of cultural appropriation? I don't know. Like, the, my question is, what is the lived experience of the people to whom lacrosse, quote unquote, belongs? Uh, I also, right away when you asked this question, I started thinking about soccer. And soccer has roots in Central America and Southern Mexico. Soccer has roots in China and Greece and Rome. And England gets credit for adding the rules that make soccer what we know it globally to be today. Um, but at what point, up until what point was it stolen sport or, or stolen ritual? And, and, and when did it become Right, like, okay, stolen, 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 and then the English add new rules and make half times 45 minutes long, and then it just becomes something they invented. And so um, I'm not gonna get anywhere with this line of thinking, but what you're saying is, is this problematic? Really, you're saying, hey, look at how problematic this is. And so I'm here saying, you're right. Super problematic that things that are ritual can be appropriated by others, um, and appropriation works always because one group has access to forms of power that allow them to borrow without remunerating. So, hey, hey, we're gonna take that on for ourselves and we're gonna do what we want with it. Um, that's problematic. It's unjust, it's structural injustice, it's, it's bad. Um, and the question becomes maybe, I mean, back to the use of the word ritual, then again, I think it becomes important to to learn, it becomes important to denote like lacrosse. What happens if en masse all of us start talking about lacrosse always as ritual instead of sport? Like what does that do to our audience? Does it make our audience go to research? Does it make our audience at least send up a little red flag and be like, oh, that's weird. You know, Dunn just called lacrosse a ritual. Is she just like using this word and attaching it to sport because she thinks it's cool to think about sport as ritual or do I need to dig deeper? Like, Maybe changing the language around lacrosse, and in this case, maybe using that word that I say scientists are trying not to use. Maybe that's the trigger that gets people paying attention, gets people listening closer, gets them doing more research. Um, this is me idealizing. Written versus oral language, let's get there because it's important too, and this is really what that second text was all about. Hallie, you ask if the written word succeeds the oral word. Why is the written word considered to be more truthful, powerful, and impactful? The really quick answer is because the people that not even necessarily, not first had the written word, but the people that colonized used written word extensively. And so the earliest forms of written words are coming out of places like China and well, Egypt, I think is the earliest example, right? There's Egypt, there's China, there's the Mayan peoples, there's others that I'm forgetting in between, but there's about a handful of cases, right, that all happen up into till 50 BCE. No, perdón, 50 CE, Common Era. Um, that's the Mayans. And so the Mayans are about fifth or sixth on the list. And so then when colonization happens, and, and it, it happened and happened and happened and happened, but let's say colonization of the Americas happened in the, this is me totally being America-centric, perdón, that's how I grew up, that's how I think about colonization. Colonization has happened way before this in Europe and Asia, etc. But let's focus on colonization of the Americas and say when the colonizers showed up to the Americas in the very end of the 15th century and then in the 16th century on, 
they found populations of people that were foremost oral or, or their, their languages were foremost oral. That's how to say that. And they were writers. And so written language was more powerful because it was something they had that the people they were colonizing did not have. Um, it really was, again, a situation of who has the most power and power in this case means initially financial capital and weapons and horses and smallpox, um, a resistance to smallpox and the ability to spread it to people that don't have that resistance and all sorts of um, other things intentional and not intentional that led to the genocides of the Americas, right? Um, that's what allows written language to trump oral. And you're right, if oral came first, if oral is principal or succeeds written, um, why is this? That's a good question. Um, but really, I think maybe, let's say, when people talk about oral as, as primary, uh, another reason, perdón, that written has power over the oral is because we still, remember last week I was talking about our problems with evolution and how we imagine it to be teleological, we imagine it as, as linear, as, as a straight line. For some reason last week I couldn't think of the word straight. We picture it as a straight word, that line that runs from left to right and moves upwards. So it's like every day we're one day more evolved and we're always advancing. That's how we picture evolution. We don't picture evolution as, as stopping and starting. We don't picture evolution as fits and bursts. We don't picture evolution as something that can also be devolution. And so we think things necessarily get more complex and we think things necessarily get better. And so in some sense, the fact that the oral precedes the written necessarily, um, what can I say? It necessarily marginalized the oral because of Western in particular ways of thinking about evolution and advancement. And then you also, you go on to say why, especially with the rise of the internet and television, does American culture specifically still rely on oral language to define key signifiers of both identity and culture? So here's an interesting point you're saying, okay, so we're privileging the written, but we also are so dependent on the oral and so much of our pop culture and so much of our own kind of self-identity, for example, comes through the oral media, news, entertainment, music, education, political debate, etc. So it's not like we've forgotten the oral um, while we're privileging the written. And, and the oral is doing really important things. That's a really interesting and important comment to make. Um, I thought that what I could say here that could be useful is just that, so Fernand de Saussure, father of semiotics, in thinking about the relationship between language and meaning, distinguishes between capital L language, that's language as it exists in the dictionary, and speech. And in his theorizing, and again, this is also, I think, accepted as truth in the present, he says, look, speech evolves more quickly than language. Language, we, we write it down, and so this is another, this is important to think about, written versus oral. Oral language evolves more quickly, um, precisely because it's not written down, it's not um, codified in some text, and people can keep going back to the text and be like, well, this word means this. Even written down language, capital L language, evolves 
it does. Um, Oxford Dictionary has a new word of the year every year that they celebrate, and obviously they're adding even more than one word every year to the dictionary. Um, it was really important in the year 2016, I think it was, the word of the year was an emoji, which was really radical, and news agencies all around the world were reporting on that. The Oxford Dictionary declared that the crying, smiley face emoji is the word of the year. Um, so words of the year, language evolves in a way that that even maybe confounds our own thinking about language. If, if we now consider, I mean, we emojis even go out of style, right? But, but they're now so ingrained into our language and into our written communication that they're starting to be incorporated into dictionaries. Um, that's important to think. Again, summary, language, capital L, language, written, form, does evolve. But speech evolves much more quickly. Um, speech evolves because some influencer in YouTube says a word by accident or just pulls it out of nowhere and all of a sudden it goes viral and everyone's using it, right? That, for example, happens all of the time. And um, it happens when you invent a word with your friends. I have, I can remember doing this in middle school, I can remember doing this in high school, right? And then you all agree that a word means something or you all decide to use one word from Spanish that you've kind of learned or half-assedly learned or think you might know what it means and you're throwing it around to mean whatever you've agreed it means. Um, you can do that with speech much more quickly than you can with written down capital L language. And I'm making that distinction because I want you to see it. When linguistic theorists think about language versus speech, <laughs> there's always a distinction between lowercase l and capital L language. Um, so it's not just that I'm neurotic and I need you to see capital L's. All right, um, there, and then how you end by saying, is the suppression of an oral language simply a device of oppression, colonization, colonialism, and racism? Probably. Um, it's maybe that, but it's maybe also additionally just about feasibility and the moment in which we exist. Is it easier to communicate written language? I stopped lecturing for a while in my courses and went to blogging because students did a much better job of getting the content. Like they would open my blogs and they would at least scan what was there. Whereas I was making God 20 minute audios at the time. Like I'd cut back and cut back and cut back. Sorry, you guys are the new generation where I'm like, screw it. You know what? I really miss being in conversation with you. I'm going to do it. Um, but I, I cut back all the way to like 20 minute audios once. And even still, it was like, I was looking at my view counts and I was like, this is abysmal. This is embarrassing. And part of it was, it just took too long. Students didn't want to click play. I don't know how you guys feel right now. I know I'm giving you long, long audios, but I'm just hoping that the pandemic made you appreciate again this kind of conversation. I'm also hoping that podcasts are on the rebound, right? That this can be a way of making your riding the bus time useful and interesting, I hope. Um, anyways, all of that is to say, sometimes written is just, it's faster and it's more feasible in 2022 for certain kinds of people in certain kinds of contexts. Language loss, this is really important. I'm gonna do a time check because I know already I'm way over. Yep, um, language loss, let's talk about this. Um, this, Ryan, this is where you pointed out the problems with Lara Boroditsky. When I was watching, I noticed how from my perspective, Boroditsky was a white female, um, ego was a white perspective. Instantly, I feel like she missed an important part of the topic of how languages will disappear in the coming years. She didn't talk about why they would be gone, erasure, colonization, blood quantum, etc. 
I'm gonna say in defense of Borodetsky, she didn't talk about this because she knows all of this and I think also she assumes, at least in her academic talks, that her audience also knows this. Um, this is language loss and this is how people understand it in the sciences and, and in the world in general, right? Language loss is a result of all of those things. It is a result of genocide. It is a result of colonization, erasure. erasure. Um, Yo, yo, you follow up by saying, Borodetsky said many of the languages in the world are dying off. How can something like that be mitigated? What will happen if it isn't? How will the lessening of different thought processes impact the way the world functions? This is really important. We think about animal extinction all the time, but we don't always or as often think about the extent, the extinction of human culture. Um, and again, culture as process is something that is ever evolving. That culture is an object someone holds in their hand, not culture as ethnicity. Culture as the webs of significance that we ourselves have construed and organized our lives. Um, culture and also language. Um, languages go extinct. And how do I be succinct? So I'm trying to answer all of your questions at the same time. How will um, the lessening of different, let's, okay, let's do them in order. How can something like language loss be mitigated? People do that by two ways. One is, and this was really popular in the 1920s in the US, American anthropologists are famous for this. Um, they did something called salvage anthropology and they did this for language and they did this also for cultural practice because not only does language shape thought, um, but cultural practice too shapes thought, right, and is a reflection of thought. And so in the 1920s, it was way more than obvious that colonization had been tremendously brutal, that already there had been a ton of language loss, a ton of cultural loss. There had been communities of people entirely wiped out by this time en masse. And so American anthropologists, well-meaning American anthropologists said, holy, this is really terrible and terrifying and we're losing all of these ways of thinking and we're losing all of these languages. These are all things that human minds collectively arrived at, these cultural forms, these languages. We need to save them. And what they did was they went out and did research. They just started taking notes on everything, deep hanging out, living amongst communities of people that were endangered, if you will. And I know that sounds uncomfortable because we're used to thinking about animals as endangered. Um, but places where culture was endangered, where language was endangered, they just started taking notes. It was, let's write it all down as fast as we can and let's save it. Obviously there's a problem with that. Language that is written and no longer spoken is, is no longer living language, right? It's dead. It's also static. It's not going to continue to evolve. Also, no matter how good you are at taking notes, um, you're not <laughs> going to be able to transcribe the thought processes, the ways of thinking, the etc. that are contained within cultural systems, for example. And so that's the problem with that approach, but it is one approach. It's one, and it's probably better than not doing that. The other, how can something like this be mitigated, is really most simply, how, I mean, how do you mitigate extinction of anything? Um, you preserve it, you protect it, you safeguard it, you do everything you can as a nation or a society or a group of activist individuals to, and in this case, um, given that language loss is related to um, the marginalization of 
communities, for example, what you need, what you necessarily need to do is you need to protect those communities of people. You need to protect those um, ways of knowing, those culture. Um, and that doesn't mean white savior protect come in and say, okay, we're going to make sure you guys protect, stay protected and continue to um, speak in this indigenous language. Um, but it's about making space for, for that kind of multilingualism. I'm thinking immediately of my own work in Southern Mexico and, um, in Southern Mexico, in Oaxaca, the state of Oaxaca, where I lived, there are more than a hundred indigenous languages. Sometimes they're called dialects. Know that that's problematic. One of you asked a really important question about the difference between language and dialect. And so without naming you, I'm just going to go there. Um, when does a dialect become a language? And you were thinking about Scottish um, examples and you were saying, when does this become its own language, for example? Um, that's a really good, important question that people try to decide all the time. Like, when does a way of speaking become a language? When does a pidgin, which a pidgin is a trade language, it's a kind of a language that comes into being because people are exchanging goods and they need to communicate with one another. So it's a, it's a very functional language and it's often, for example, it might be French with a native language on the islands in the Caribbean, for example. And what happens is a pidgin over time as it's formalized, so pidgin is, is spoken and it's informal and it's really dynamic and evolving, it's P-I-D-G-I-N, so you're not picturing the bird. Um, a pidgin over time usually becomes a creole and the difference between a pidgin and a creole is a creole is considered a language, right? It's, it's rules are more static, it's got longevity, it's gonna last, it's, it's more formalized than a pidgin, let's say. Um, but these are arbitrary. Humans like to categorize things. And so when you were asking about dialect versus language, when can a dialect become a language? That's a really important question, but know simultaneously that there are also a lot of people saying those things we're calling dialects, like that itself is a kind of racism, a kind of ethnocentrism. And Scotland isn't the perfect example, but Mexico maybe is, where in again, in Oaxaca, where I did my own research for many years, um, the, the largest indigenous populations in Mexico are in the three southernmost states, and Oaxaca is one of those. And so you've got over a hundred languages spoken, well over a hundred, you've got over 80 varieties of a language called Zapoteco. And in Spanish, often those are called dialectos, dialects. But in fact, it's really just a derogatory word for language. These are languages, and they're called dialects because it makes them marginal, it makes them, it distinguishes them from languages like Spanish and English and French. Um, but so the fight in academia and out has been to recategorize these all across Mexico and in the Spanish language in general, not as dialectos, but as lenguajes, languages. And so I thought I would say that here, that's important. Um, and I think related to what we're thinking about this last week with language and power, and also next week with power and fear, um, we're gonna talk a lot about social strategy, social construction, and and power, both of these weeks. I Let's see, let's go from that to... Language and thought, which gets us right away to uh, Audrey, you were who asked about dialect. When does dialect stop being a dialect and start becoming its own language? So the answer is either when 
categorizers of such things decide. It does decide. It's formal and established and usually things like that has rules that are unchanging. That would be one way. Or when people realize something's just being called a dialect because it's being dismissed as not complex enough to be a language and when people recognize that there's a classism and a racism in that categorization and therefore they say this is problematic, we're going to start recognizing these as languages because they are. In the case of Scottish English, um, I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if that is the same case as the case I just presented from Oaxaca, Mexico, for example. And Eli, this is related. You said, why are people so resistant to language changing and adapting? Um, be that dialects branching out of a singular... Oh, so you're thinking of thinking of whether it's dialects branching out from a language. Um, I was thinking about how in the 90s black vernacular English BVE was something you saw all the time in the news and in academia and it's something I haven't seen in a long time and maybe that's because I'm mostly in the Spanish literature right now but I was wondering if you guys know that. Have you ever seen capital B, capital V, capital E to mean black vernacular English? Does anybody still use that or did that go out? That was the formal correct way of responding to black, capital B now, black American speech. Um, and I don't know if anyone uses that anymore. But that might be considered something that would have been understood to be a dialect branching out. Um, even though it didn't branch out, it kind of always existed in parallel too. And then you also give it as an example, Eli, the singular they. Um, it seems there is a resistance to any change in language as we use it. And thus, that would also be a resistance to how we think, right? If language shapes how we think, if we don't want language to change, then we also don't want how we think to change. And um, I guess what I wanna say to this is just, yeah, people are resistant to change in general, but language has only ever and always evolved. Um, it doesn't matter how careful you are to try to only use words in the dictionary and say every time you go out into the world you carry your dictionary with you and you're going to stick to what's written there. Even if you tried to do that, which is totally infeasible, language would evolve. It just does. It's a social construct. People make it. They continually make it. Um, they make it. You need it to fit new contexts. You need it to fit new technology. You need it to fit new, t new practices. Um, if nothing else in humanity changed, maybe we could fathom an unchanging language, but that's not the way the world works. That's not the way humanity works. Okay, satisfying? I'm actually scrolling up through my questions in language loss, so I'm really still in language loss. Um, Linnea, you were talking, you pulled this quote from How to Tame a Wild Tongue, which is really important. This um, was from Ray Gwen Smith and cited by Gloria Ansaldoa. Who is to say that robbing a people of its language is less violent than war? And your question was, who is this person that said this quote? This is such a badass quote. Um, I agree, I never thought to look up the who said that. And what I think I figured out is this is a painter who is in Santa Cruz, California. And I suspect that Ray Gwen Smith, the speaker of that, um, I left a link in this all of this, row, my sorting out of your questions. So at the very top, of 4.1 problem posing where I put all your questions in an order. I left a link to a site, a, an interview with this woman. Um, and what I get is just that she's a California based artist. And I suspect that she was probably friends or in the same social circles as Gloria Ansaldúa. She appears to be approximately the same age group. Um, so that, and thank you for sending me down that rabbit hole. It was really interesting. 
And all right, there. I think more or less, so I'm not gonna do anything else with that quote. Let's just say it one more time, it's important. Who is to say that robbing a people of its language is less violent than war? Especially now that we have Lyra Boroditsky up front showing us all of this research over and over and over again that is confirming the hypothesis that language does in fact shape thought. Um, so probably we can argue that robbing a people of its language is a different kind of violence than war. I don't think we need to order them as which one's worse or which one's less violent or more violent. I think they can both be devastating, but I do think that the, it's really important to suggest that language loss is as bad as war. Now we get to language and thought in general. Kaylee, you arrive at would a universal language ever be possible? And you made me think right, about, right away of the Tower of Babel in the Bible. The Bible, if you go back and read, this is Genesis chapter 11, right from the start. Maybe I even have this open. I went back and confirmed this, I do. Here are the opening lines of Genesis chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. Builded is in fact how it's written in this, what I'm reading, just so you know. And the Lord said, behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So here, let me summarize real quick. This is the opening again of Genesis chapter 11, and this is, all right, these people realize they're going to build this tower together. All, it starts with all of the earth was one language and one speech. And then these people come together and they say, let's build a tower that gets us up to heaven. And God sees this and he's like, whoa, look at how powerful these people are. They have this ability to build a tower to heaven. That's super problematic. We're gonna give them a bunch of speeches or, or, or languages that would be, we're gonna confound their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so this is a narrative about how there came to be so many different languages on the planet earth. And the argument is the Lord scattered all of these languages, the people all over the place and gave them all different languages so they couldn't communicate, so that they couldn't therefore build this tower to heaven. And so Kaylee, your question is a question a lot of people have asked. Um, and it's a question that in a sense is addressed in the Bible, right? Like how powerful would we be as human beings if we had this singular language that we could all use to communicate? Um, yes. Lots of people have even tried to achieve that. Lots of people have set about trying to construct um, simpler languages with the idea that kind of simpler phonetics, for example, something not like English, where one letter can mean 10 different, can sound 10 different ways, um, but languages that are instead phonetic, like Spanish, where every word, every letter, perdón, has one single sound always. Um, it doesn't mean Spanish is simple, it's not, um, but it's, say, easier to learn in written format. Um, lots of people have said about trying to invent these languages. And if you Google this, you'll go down a rabbit hole that I think is really interesting. Universal languages attempts to create universal language. Um, it's something people have thought about and people have thought would be a good thing. 
Obviously the flip side is it becomes a kind of a McDonald'sization perhaps of the world or Coca-Colaization of the world. Like one thing is to imagine a world in which everyone still speaks all of the indigenous languages that, of which they are inheritors, so all of their ancestors' languages, so nothing gets lost, and so therefore we have all of the complexity of thought that has ever um, existed inside of humanity through time, and simultaneously learn one more language that is this universal language so we can all bump into each other somewhere on the planet and be able to communicate. Um, but then also, as somebody who spends a lot of my life traveling and being in context, increasingly I go places where I can um, speak, but I don't know, not always. And there's also what you lose with the universal language, one, the pragmatics you risk um, replacing all of the linguistic diversity that is on the planet if we arrive at a universal language. Like, how do we have a universal language and, and then also have all of the other languages? How do people not stop using all of these other languages um, in the face of a universal language? Problem one. But problem two is also, you lose all of the experience of communicating with individuals who do not share your same language. And think of all of the power of I'm, any of you who've traveled, um, and it doesn't have to be abroad, have found yourself in contexts where you, you're not speaking the same register, the same speech as someone with whom you're interacting. And so you maybe don't understand all of the words or you don't understand sometimes any of the words. And how do you negotiate that situation? Um, that's something that I think is really rich and important and from which um, the lessons are invaluable. And so my knee jerk based on my own lived experience response is universal language would also eliminate that kind of, it also eliminates a kind of discomfort, but also then instant awareness of like our diversity and our uniqueness and this, I mean, I don't know that awe of seeing someone speak another language that you can't even begin to, to construct phonetically, right? Languages in which the sounds of the language, the phonemes of the language are so distinct from the phonemes, the, the units of sound in the language that you speak. Like, you're, this is going back to Ethan, there are people that are afraid of that experience, but that's also a kind of experience that people embrace that from which you can learn a lot. Um, okay, Ethan, you had a really good example of, uh, let me just read this because I have it highlighted. I'm so hoping this will end up a question, this is in Ethan's voice, by the time I say what I wanna say. I was super fascinated by the how language shapes the way we think video. I actually just read a short story for my creative writing class, um, Paper Menagerie by Ken Liu, which took my breath away. It was so beautiful and I think one of the most impactful parts was the, narrator, the narrator's mother explaining that when she uses the English word love, she feels it coming from her mouth, a word. But when she uses a Chinese word, I, she feels it from her heart. This is probably more of a rhetorical question of me processing how I personally feel about language. But despite English being my first and only fully learned language, I feel like it's lacking. I always thought maybe it was because I'm autistic and can't grasp meaning as well. But being a writer who focuses so much on emotion, I can never use English words to describe what those emotions feel like. But I also can't use any other languages because I don't know them. Maybe I'm asking how to connect to these English words better and make them actually feel impactful rather than literally just letters, sounds, symbols. Um, that's a really important question and I think that even starts to address your thinking about universal language, Kaylee. Another thing that universal language would strip um, away is 
this rich diversity, and again, this is assuming universal language re replace linguistic diversity, it would strip away all of these different ways to feel through language. And um, I wish, Ethan, I knew how to answer your question. I love all of what you've asked here. And what I think first is, is there anyone who writes in English who makes you feel the ways you want to feel in relationship to words, to verbs, to the word love in particular? Can you find, what I would do is I would go look for someone. Um, there are writers that I get really excited about in English who, I mean, and I'm saying this as someone who loves the Spanish language, and a lot of times I think sentence structures in Spanish are really tremendously impactful and maybe more so than in English, but also that's because they feel fresher to me, they feel more unique to me, and so my lived experience in what is the second language I learned is distinct from my lived experience from my first language. But what I then do is I look for people like Gloria Ansaldúa that write across languages and in a multiplicity of languages. And I also look for people that write in English, for example, in ways that really hit me over the head and make me feel. And then I, I try to learn from them. Um, I think Hanif Abdurraqib for me is one of those writers. And again, that's who we started. Uh, Little Devil in America at the very beginning of the course, that was the first thing we read. For those of you who maybe have so much going on in your brains right now, you don't remember that. All right, uh, Nicholas, I love that Laura, Bar Laura Boroditsky got you thinking you need to travel. That's the other. Um, for those of you that are asking questions like, how can I, you know, if, if language shapes thought, I mean, does it really just mean accumulate as many languages as possible to accumulate new ways of thinking? Maybe. And then the fix, how do you do that? You do that by traveling. I mean, you can do that by taking classes. You can do that by downloading Duolingo or Babbel. But you really do that by traveling and it doesn't have to be abroad. It can be inside of your same city. You do that by putting yourself into contexts where people are speaking differently from you. It doesn't even have to be different languages. Um, people who are thinking differently from you. And you have to find ways to do that that are not intrusive and uncomfortable for the people from whom you hope to learn. Um, again, I have this, when I think of Minneapolis, my last experiences there were performance arts performed in skyways downtown Minneapolis that, for example, one skyway separated a community, a building um, that housed mostly Somali families to a grocery store and the performance artists weren't thinking about, they just wanted to do performance art in a skyway and the idea was this was public art and everybody was going to gain from it because when is art not good? And then I'm in this performance and it's just a really awkward, uncomfortable performance to begin with. Like, it just, I didn't get it. That's me being judgy, I'm sorry. But it was just this, I wasn't wowed by the performance and on top of that, it was super inconvenient for the people that had just planned to go to the grocery store and then go back to their buildings via the skyway in Minnesota in the middle of winter and they had to like walk around a bunch of um, artists and art groupies like watching this performance that was hard to make sense out of and um, all of that is just me saying it's really important. You can't just put yourself into someone else's space. You have to be really careful to um, be there in a way that, that makes others want you there. There. That's me stating the obvious. Alright, um, Aaron. I want to add, because this is what you've said and it's maybe important, again, I'm sorry I'm dwelling on Borodetsky so much, but this was really striking. You talked about your own experience as someone who is trilingual and that um, 
to have a second language is to have a second soul does feel like your own lived experience that people have told you your voice is different in English than in Mongolian, for example. Um, then you also cite one of your ESL class teachers who said after reading an essay, you're thinking like a Mongolian, you need to think like an American. Um, Gloria Ansaldua would be pissed off about that. Um, you instead said, I understood that what she meant was like my syntax was wrong for English. And so um, that led you then to this question where you said you say you know look it's all really neat and nice to say like we need to be able to embrace the multiplicity of languages but it's ultimately also problematic that someone doesn't learn to speak english quote unquote correctly because that's going to limit your access to to certain careers to certain um types of success maybe and i think that's a good point to make. I think it's a totally valid point in 2022, but I also think increasingly, and I hope increasingly, that um, how work exists and the kinds of work that exist are, are allowing more and more and more space for people to um, subvert language, to, um, to not have to speak a certain kind of English language to quote unquote succeed. Um, and maybe that's just wishful thinking and it's easy to say that from within academia, right? Within academia right now, part of the push to decolonize education is to start um, not overemphasizing grammar, for example, not overemphasizing spelling, but really emphasizing critical thought. Like, can we focus on the thought that's going on? And I don't really care about your syntax here because what I'm interested in are your ideas and I want to be respectful of the multiplicity of languages you speak and I don't want to demand from you a kind of polished English that you would have if you were born and raised your whole life here, but don't have. Um, and by here, I mean here in a particular class, in a particular kind of neighborhood, in a particular, right? Like. Part of accessibility right now means embracing vernaculars and in, in all of their complexities and, and also trying to embrace, and this is really debated, liberal arts professors are trying to figure out what to do about this. Um, I mean, when do we start to accept college papers in Mongolian, for example? We're not there yet. Um, but can we accept English language Mongolian syntax final theses, for example? we can if we all agree that that's part of embracing diversity and that's kind of where we're at in conversation right now. So there, that's what I wanted to say. And maybe that doesn't quite translate to the world outside of academia yet, but I hope that someday it does. And I also know that there are lots of spheres in the world where um, you can be tremendously successful and it's not just in professional sports and the arts and music, for example. There are lots of other places and ways in which people want your creativity more than they want your linguistic precision. So that's important to keep in mind. And maybe it's also worth your while to keep an eye out for those kinds of positions. The kinds of positions where you're not gonna lose a job because in an interview your speech doesn't sound like a white suburban kid from Barrington, Illinois. There, I said that out loud. I don't know why I'm making these podcasts public. I shouldn't, you guys. Um, Ariana, you had two really great questions. And you get us thinking about oral societies and colonial experiences, sub-Saharan Africa and the de facto power of the written word, which was Abdi's essay we re read. Um, the quote that you pulled 
Unlike time in the European culture and European worldview, which is practically commodified, time in Africa is always present, abundant, and friendly. As Ong in 1985 conveyed, quote, by contrast with societies with written languages, oral societies can be characterized as homeostatic. That is, oral societies live very much in the present, which keeps itself in equilibrium or homostasis. And homeostasis, perdón for saying that wrong. Is there more of a tendency in Western culture, this is you, Abriana, asking, is there more of a tendency in Western cultures to look back at the past fondly or perhaps give greater meaning due to our emphasis on the written word? Like how looking at pictures, essentially evidence of the past can bring memories. Does the written word effectively work the same? Um, that's an interesting question. I would say to you that it's not that people, and I'm using as my example, just a little bit of knowledge of um, Western Apache in the US, in the New Mexico region, and then I'm also thinking with what I know from Zapotecs, Mixtecs, and Tzotziles, with whom I worked in Southern Mexico, who are indigenous peoples. I, um, my own knee-jerk answer to, to people in Western cultures look back at the past fondly, give greater meaning to the past due to the emphasis on the written word, which kind of codifies the past, right? You write it down and it sticks and it's there in the past. And, and it also, um, you're thinking obviously with this quote where oral societies live very much in the present. Um, my own sense is what oral societies, given the familiarity I have with the groups I just named, bring the past into the present. And so it's not that the past is, is looked, it's not that it, um, it's not that, I don't know, that Western cultures are looking back at the past fondly. It's maybe that in the communities of indigenous peoples, I know people don't have to look back at the past because the past is so tremendously present in the present. And so because they're thinking, and there are people in this class, Shawnee, Ryan, for example, you both are Anishinaabe, and I would love to know how you would answer this question. But my own lived experience suggests to me that oral societies often are better at understanding the past as not disconnected from the present, right? Um, which is truth, if we want to talk truth, right? The present isn't independent of the past. Um, the present always exists in its historical context. And I think oral societies are much better at, at recognizing that and living that as their daily reality. There isn't this distinction between past, present, and there might not be a distinction between present, future. Um, that I don't know. But that's how I would answer your question for what it's worth. And again, Shawnee, Ryan, anyone else in this room, this virtual room that has thoughts on this, let me know. Um, I'm going to table, Eric, you're thinking about freedom of speech. I also want to come back to an M, so I'm going to table this for later. Eric has a really good question from week one about the, cons the use of once upon a time as a kind of linguistic trick or, or just as a phrase that gets used to open up so many narratives. What does this do? How does it function? Um, let's get there. Let's do that when we talk functionalism. I wanted to juxtapose that to some other forms of opening, right? The Bible opens in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. There's also um, from the Lenape or Delaware, American Indian tribe, this common opening at first in that place at all times above the earth. 
So that's a, it's a translation, that's a translation from pictographs, so it might not be a totally accurate translation. Again, this is about transcribing and translating pictographs into English, so there's so much room for problems here. But like, what's the difference, for example, between opening a narrative with once upon a time versus opening a narrative with at first, in that place, at all times, above the earth? Like, one, how does one's thinking about time necessarily differ for one to construct that latter opening to a sacred narrative? And then just two, how do these phrases reinforce particular understandings of time? Um, one is once upon a time, the other is in all times, right? How does an event, like, what do, how do we have to open up our minds to understand that a narrative that is about to be recounted is something that happened at all times? And, and is it happened or is it happens? Like, even what tense do we tell that narrative? And again, that I think maybe reinforces already my thinking that um, lots of people who are not who we consider quote unquote Western cultures, even when they are very much of what is considered the West. Um, but there are so many communities of people speaking languages that are not English, Spanish, French, for example, who understand the past as much more present in the present, right? That at all times, just to begin with, like to understand something as happening at all times allows it to span past, present, and even the future. All right, so we're jumping freedom of speech. Myth and metaphor, this is gonna be the last thing I do. Oh my God, you guys, I can't make these shorter. Myth and metaphor, this is gonna be the very last thing I do this week. And for those of you that got this far into this podcast, I thank you very sincerely. All I wanna do right now is answer the question. Obviously, um, you got my podcast, or pardon, my blog, so I feel like I've said to you and showed you the examples. I want to make the points that metaphors can be dangerous, um, that metaphors um, also shape thought, and, and metaphors are obviously language. But I, I wanna to suggest to you that in deciding to consider metaphors as myths, what we do is we give ourselves a space we we allow us because we're going to be asking all the time what do myths do and i'm wondering who are the people people mythologists have been asking for more than 100 years now what do myths do but who are the people asking what do metaphors do and if they're just linguists and sorry to the linguists i don't want to suggest that they're not as relevant they are but they tend to talk amongst themselves right they tend to create a literature that i mean there are people that i'm sure have long, decades-long careers. I think, um, I'm thinking of George Lakoff has written a book on freedom as a metaphor. There, there are people that write entire books on metaphors that are really important. Um, but when they're writing out of linguistics, and again, George Lakoff is a bad example because that was a kind of a pop book. Um, freedom is Freedom is Freedom, I believe it was called. At least the chapter in the book was called Freedom as Freedom as Freedom. George Lakoff, I'll tell you. Freedom. Whose Freedom is the title of the book. George Lakoff wrote a book. It might feel a little bit dated now, but it's still really important. Whose Freedom? Um, and that, oh my God. Here's what I wanna say. Um, by counting metaphors as myths, by adding them into this category that we've created, and for me that category is sacred narratives that transcend generations, by putting metaphor in that category and thinking about metaphor alongside of things we might more readily consider to be sacred narratives that transcend generations. We elevate metaphor to something worthy of our intention, which is really important given how insidious metaphor is. Um, 
And what we do is is we we bring metaphor into conversations where people aren't used to having it. Like think of how many of you are in this class because you're interested in myth, but you might not have taken a class that was titled metaphors and symbolism or metaphors and and similes and symbolism or or metaphors and linguistics, right? Like maybe that class wouldn't have any of you in it because it's not titled myth, ritual, and symbolism. So I really like and think it's important to pull metaphor into our thinking because what it does is it gives metaphor space to be grappled with. And if we fail to do that, it's just, it's again about hegemony and about taking for grantedness. And it's about if we don't pay attention to metaphors, then they get to work on us in all of the ways that they do work on us. Um, they get to desensitize us to nuclear arms races. They get to um, clean up the discourses of these forms of genocide. They get to, um, I don't know, they, they get to be as dangerous and insidious as they can be if we're not paying attention to them. And so I like adding them into our conversation here and I like considering them as myths. There. That's what I want to say. I want to let you guys get on with life. I have some general thoughts about accents we didn't get to. That's okay. I'll recoup those someday. Also, just in general, language and power. Um, I do... This fits Ariana. You used a quote. I'm going to read it because I really like getting quotes here. And thank you for pulling these quotes out because you do the work for me. This is a quote... Um, from Ansaldúa, for a people who are neither Spanish nor live in a country in which Spanish is the first language, for a people who live in a country in which English is the reigning tongue but who are not Anglo, for a people who cannot entirely identify with either standard formal Castilian Spanish nor standard English, what recourse is left to them but to create their own language. This is a great place to end this podcast. And you ask, when can a new manner of oral communication be considered a language? Is it possible to have a totally new language as long as at least two people understand it wholly and give it meaning? My answer to that is yes. I think Klingon probably started out that way and now became a kind of a cult language. Is that enough? All one needs to do in order to create a new language? Um, probably. But then is a language like Klingon ever going to be a language of power? I don't know. That's the follow-up question. Right now it's a cult language. It's a marker of identity. Like how good of a Trekkie are you? It's also, despite the fact that it's living, I don't think it's a language that evolves. You can buy a Klingon dictionary and memorize it and it kind of lives the way it lived on Star Trek and the way it lives in Klingon dictionaries, um, to use a totally absurd, absurd example. But so um, I want to also go from that quote by Ansaldua, what recourse is left to them, to these people she describes, who, who don't speak either of these standard languages, what recourse is left to them but to create their own language? Um, that's a rhetorical question. Ansaldua is saying that's really the only option for these people that are marginalized from both formal capital L languages that are present in a region. Um, and therefore, what they do is they create a variety of what some people might call dialects, but which we're going to elevate in this class out of respect to the category of language. Um, Spanglish as language, um, Ticano as language, Northern Mexican Spanish, which is necessarily influenced by English also as language. All of these different subgenres of what we might think of as Spanglish. Like, let's elevate them all to language. And Gloria Ansaldúa's obsession with them, fascination with them, 
uh, demand that she write her dissertation in all of them simultaneously is these are my languages. This is, and over and over and over again, people relate, um, identify with their languages. And so language also shapes one's identity, right? It's part of your performance of self necessarily. And to have to go to school and drop the languages you use in all of your other performances of self, Lots of people do it, lots of people have done it. I think, Erin, you suggested that you've learned in school that this is really what you need to do if you want to exceed, succeed. I think that that's been a long-running piece of advice. Um, but it's colonial. And so I, I guess let me leave you with what would happen if part of decolonizing is necessarily about subverting our formal quote-unquote standard capital L languages. Um, and then just to get us all the way back to thinking about myth ritual and symbolism, we in this course are going to be thinking again over and over again, and especially at the end when we start thinking about can we pragmatically world build, can we pull narratives together in a way that, that we find useful to, I don't know, inform the future, change the future, make better the present and future. Um, I, is that going to happen in English? Is, is there a better way to do that? Can, can we be translingual? Can we be multilingual in that project? Um, do we maybe have to be? Or do we have to invent our own language? Um, there, let me leave you. That's a mess of thoughts, you guys. Thank you for being with me here all the way through this. I hope you have good days or mornings or evenings or wherever you are at. And we are in touch. Talk soon. Cheers and ciao.